Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles today. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25. We talked in week 1 about the beginning, Genesis 1-1, and then last week we covered creation, which was Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and into chapter 2. And then today we're talking about man. Genesis chapter 2, 4 through 25. Let's read that. These are the words of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet grown, for Yahweh God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden toward the east, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is desirable in appearance and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is one that went around the whole land of Havelah, where the, there is gold. Now the gold of that land is good, and Delium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that went east of Ashur. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Then Yahweh God took the man and set him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, and from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the fields and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one, is finally, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Our Father in God, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit so that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Through Christ our Lord, we pray, and amen. amen. Well, last week I emphasized the fact that in Genesis 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, we learn that man is the purpose of creation. We have to keep this in mind. Man is the purpose of creation. He is the purpose and end of creation, and thus he is the head and crown of all creation. Uh, that's the grand moment of Genesis 1, when man is created. Uh, this is this beautiful crescendo to the creation story. Genesis 2, however, zooms in on day 6 particularly by declaring that the creation of man, as the purpose of creation, is now the beginning of covenantal history. Man is now the beginning of covenantal history. That's chapter 2. All that God had made was good, and when God made man, remember he made man male and female, it was very good back in chapter 1, verse 31. But good and very good should not be understood to mean perfect or final. When God says something is good here, he doesn't mean that it's perfect or final. Instead, goodness is the quality of creation as being exactly what God desired. What God desired, he made, and, and it was good in his assessment. Everything was accomplished according to his plan. God had granted life and energy to the creation, but it wasn't complete. It wasn't fully complete yet. It was to be uh, man's cultural project. The process of heavenization would be contingent upon man's development of culture. 
We talked a little bit about that last week. The process of heavenization, that's what we see in chapter 1, kind of a bird's eye view. And now in chapter 2, we revisit that. And the process, though, of heaven and earth being united is contingent upon man's cultural development. Man has a role to play in the world, and how that process is played out depends on that. To be clear, this does not advance man into a state of higher ontological or metaphysical status. That's the error of Roman Catholicism. Uh, we don't have time to go into that, but when, when we talk about this advancement or, or this development, we're not saying that man becomes more than what he is, this process of becoming God, God-like. Um, it's not that at all. Man's essence and his being and his nature doesn't change in this regard. Man doesn't become something other than man. He's still man. But rather, the advancement is in terms of ethics. It's in terms of dominion, development, culture. Uh, we might say cultural development, um, historical fulfillment and fruitfulness in terms of God's law word. So man doesn't grow in the sense that he becomes something else. He grows in terms of his ethical adherence to God and his standard. That's the growth that we're talking about, the fruitfulness. You're making something fruitful in history. The question before us this morning is a question that has plagued philosophers and bread makers, professors and floor scrubbers, everybody, which is to say everyone, what is man? What is man? What is his purpose? We have a culture today that does not know the answer to that question. What is man? Define man. We even ask the question, what is a woman? And we have a culture that doesn't know how to answer that either. But what is man's purpose? Understanding ourselves, as Calvin said, is caught up in understanding God. How we know ourselves is connected to how we know God. And these two pieces of knowledge can't be separated. Man is not autonomous. Ever, at any point, is man actually autonomous. Men try to be autonomous today, but to no avail. In fact, man, not only is he not autonomous, he is a derivation, a derivation from God the Sovereign One. He is derived from God. He can't escape that. Man thus has a couple of things. One, he has an objective. That's imputed from on high. God has, an, God has given man an objective. And two, God has issued from on high a purpose. So he has an objective and a purpose. He has a calling and a task that he's supposed to fulfill. So, and there's purpose within that objective. So creation has structure. Man has direction. Creation has a structure to it that's uh, something that's immovable, unshakable. You can't, you, can't, uh, you can't change it. Creation has a structure, but man has a direction. And to be clear, man is also structured a certain way, too. We have a biological laws that we adhere to. Uh, men are men, women are women. Uh, they have different sets of DNA genes, the XX, XY. Uh, you can't change that, though people try. But we have a direction as well. The, man has a purpose. Therefore, in order to adequately answer the question of man, we simply must know ourselves in terms of God and his creation ordinances. If you want to answer the question, what is man, you have to know man in terms, and know ourselves, in terms of God and his creation ordinances. Our lives are to be ordered in such a way as to align with God's commands. Our lives are to be ordered in such a way as to align with God's commands. So let's look at our text this morning. In verse 4, we find something rather striking. Yahweh God made earth and heaven. See that at the uh, very end of verse 4 there? Yahweh God made earth and heaven. Generations, this idea of generations, will come up several times in Genesis. And actually, the scholars have, have agreed, essentially, you can't, uh, you can't get them to agree on much, but you can, they usually agree on this. Anytime you see the, these are the generations phrase, that's the start of a new section. So they generally agree on that. But that's going to come up several times. But it, Generations is simply a reference to family records. These are the family records. The, the generations or the, the times, the, the process that is involved here. Now notice at the end of verse 4 that the heavens and the earth are inverted. It starts with the heavens and the earth, and then it says, Yahweh God made earth and heaven. 
With the covenant name of God being used, this is the first time we see Yahweh's name being used, and rather than using simply the word Elohim, Elohim is the plural Hebrew word that just simply means God generally. But now in our text we have Yahweh God. So the covenant name of, of God is used here, but it introduces an important dynamic. Man is a creature made to respond in covenant union with the covenant God. We don't see the phrase Yahweh God used in chapter 1 at all. It's just simply God. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, God. But now in chapter 2, we get kind of personal. We have Yahweh God, the covenant God. Man is a creature made to respond to the covenant God. So God here initiates the covenant with Adam. And if you, send, if you want one, there's one verse we can go to. Uh, it's in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, Israel, like Adam, broke the covenant. So God made a covenant with Adam, and that's one of the verses we go to to prove, even though the word barith here, covenant, isn't actually used in Genesis 2. But God initiates a covenant with Adam, and we can conclude that the personal God gets personal with man. Uh, this God generally has now come forward as the Yahweh God. He is Yahweh. That is his name. So man isn't evolved pond scum. <laughs> He is a covenant partner. He's not evolved pond scum, a fish that grew legs and eyes and started walking around. That's not who man is. He is a covenant partner with God. In verse 5, we see that the earth was lacking. The earth was lacking something, even though God called it good and very good. There was no man to cultivate the ground. God had made this. There's no, there's no man to cultivate the ground. The world was made for man to develop. It's interesting that that's the problem here. There's no man to cultivate the ground. Cultivation is actually related to the word culture. When you think of culture, we're talking about it's an agricultural term. It literally means to till the crops. Your, your culture building is like uh, growing crops and tilling the land. So creation was good, definitely good, but it wasn't entirely perfect in the sense that it was finished and complete. It needed work. Man was to serve, dress, work, labor, and fashion the land. Agriculture is foundational to man's survival, right? I mean, we, 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 we need food to sustain us. When we eat of the ground, we are identifying with the ground. The ground is where we came from, and we eat there, and that's how we're sustained. So this presents a problem, though, especially in our fast food days. Uh, <laughs> in order to get food, man must work. In order to get the land to do something that will feed you, to sustain you, man has to work. Man has to cultivate it. In verse 6, we learn that in the first world, God watered the earth from below. In verse 6, note that uh, there, there's a stream that would rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So the water came from below. The water from the sky heaven would come later to bring about a baptism. And that's what we have in the flood story. So again, the earth is to be heavenized and developed. There is water available. The crops are available. We need a man to cultivate it, and man needs to cultivate it in order to, to eat, to, to live and be sustained. So man needs to exist. In order to achieve this cultivation, man needs to exist. Accordingly, Yahweh God, this is verse 7, formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being or a living soul. We're going to talk about that as it relates to the animals in another message. Um, Adam became a living soul. Now, man here is the Hebrew word Adam. Uh, he's made from the dust of the Adamah, the ground. So his name is literally derived from the ground. Ground is Adamah. And Adam's name, Adam in Hebrew, they're related. So he came from the dust, he came from the ground. Now, interestingly, man is actually masculine here. The Adam is, is a masculine in the Hebrew word. And ground is feminine. Uh, humanity, in some sense, not in a pagan Greek myth mythological sense, but humanity is the offspring of heaven and earth. Humanity is the offspring of heaven and earth, of God's creative heavenly interaction with the soil. So he, he makes out of the 
female ground a male. Interesting dynamic that'll come up later. The Spirit's breath of life is heaven's watery moisture meeting the dust with resultant clay man arriving. He's the clay man. Adam is the clay man. The dust and the water, the water of the breath of the Spirit, creates moisture, creates man here. Heaven's spirit air translates into Adam's breath. So Adam begins to start breathing. He had no, a nose, he had lungs. God had fashioned the human body in intricate detail, but he wasn't alive yet. And not until the Holy Spirit breathes into him does he thus come alive. So earth's soil is translated into Adam's flesh as a result of this transaction. The union between heaven and earth is reflected in humanity. That's an important note for Christians. The, the union of heaven and earth is reflected in humanity. That's why humans are considered the crown of creation, as we saw in Psalm chapter 8. So being alive and well and in covenant with God, Adam is to actively contribute to the goal of creation. What is the goal of creation? Well, God's glory. God's glory and will accomplished here on earth as it is in heaven. So Adam is heaven and earth man. And he's here on earth to heavenize the earth. That's the language that we have here. Now, the rest of the chapter focuses on the three gifts that God gave to man. God gave three very important gifts. First, he gave him a garden park. In fact, the, sometimes your Bibles are translated paradise. Uh, that's, that comes from a, um, a different origin of language. Uh, a Persian, actually, Persian origin. But Garden Park is actually probably your best, your best bet. It's a Garden Park that he gave him. So that's the first gift. The second gift is a vocation. He gave him a task. So he gave him a place of worship, the Garden Park. He gave him a vocation. And third, perhaps the greatest gift, Adam received from the Lord a wife. Three gifts he gets here in the opening chapters. We're going to talk a little bit about each one. So a Garden Park, a vocation, and a wife. After forming man and making him alive, God planted the garden. You see, you see that in verse 8 and verse 15. Note the order here. The world is first, then man, then the garden. There's an order to, to all of this. Adam was to watch and learn as God created the garden. This is implied in the text. The world was made, then God made Adam, and then he gave him a park, a garden park, to stroll through and enjoy the presence of God. So the, Adam watched this take place. He was alive at that point, early on on day six, perhaps watching the garden, watching all of this unfold, and he was to learn from God. He was to learn how God takes care of his creation so that he can mimic it. So God is the great gardener. God is the great gardener, as Mary acknowledged when she thought the resurrected Jesus was the gardener. Indeed, he was the gardener. There's a connection there in the Gospel of John. So Adam is to be a gardener under God. He's to be a gardener under God. Before going into the land of Eden and out into the world, Adam must be trained in communion with God. He must be trained. He must learn how to worship and serve God, being faithful to him in every area of life. That's what the garden was there for. Before he goes out, because if you think of the land of Eden, the garden was in the east, and then the rest of the world was out from there. He was to start in communion with God and worship with God. And by the way, the tabernacle, tabernacle in the temple has all sorts of symbolism related to this, this, this whole thing. We don't have time to go into it, but ask me later and I'll tell you more. But you have the garden, the land of Eden, and then the world. You had the Holy of Holies, the holy place, and then you had the outer courtyard and the tabernacle. So Adam, Adam's to be trained. He's to, he's to learn how to worship and serve God. He's to commune with God in the garden. And then he's to be faithful to him. Adam is a religious being. You, you want to answer the question, what is man? Man is a religious being. Like it or not, you're a religious being. All of life is lived either in covenant obedience and faithfulness or covenant disobedience and unfaithfulness to God. There's no neutrality. You're either serving the Lord or you're not. And you don't get to pretend that you're not. Because you're not. <laughs> you either are or you aren't. So before exiting the garden, again, in the eastern region of the land of, of Eden, and thus going into the world to expand heaven's garden influence, Adam first needed to learn. 
He needed to be trained. He needed to be taught how to walk. He was an infant. Adam probably was made, I would assume, somewhere as a young, a young man. We don't know exactly the age. But despite his age, whatever it was, imagine being Adam having to keep track of your age. I'm 30, but I just existed this morning. You know, I don't, We don't know exactly how old he was. But he probably was at least a, a young man to some degree. People think, well, Jesus was probably 30, probably when he started his ministry. Then Adam was probably 30. I'm fine with that. It's speculation. It's fun to think about. But the point is, Adam was a young man, but he was really a baby. He was an infant. He needed to learn how to walk, how to stand upright, how to develop tools, how to worship God. And Adam, in order to rule as Adam's vicegerent, Adam has to serve the covenant Lord Yahweh. So he needed time with God in order to then develop, develop the world. Now, a couple of quick things here. First, within the garden itself were all sorts of trees. In verse 9, it says they were desirable in appearance and good for food. So they were attractive to some degree, the, fr the fruit of the tree, and they were good for food. Side note here, another fun thing to think about. Some people believe that God created all of this in around the month September because that's when the fruits and the plants were the ripest and ready for consumption. So fall of 4004 BC is my best guess of creation. It's about all you're going to get from me. Now, among those listed here are the two sacramental trees. You have the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so lots of trees everywhere. Great. They look great. You should partake of them. They taste great. But you had these special two trees in the middle, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I will go into more detail about that next week. But those are the two trees. The garden represents the firmament. It's a mediatory boundary for earthly Adam. Just like the sky heaven was a firmament boundary between heaven and earth, so the garden was to be that same sort of thing. And, there, and there's a reason it was a garden. God mediates life to us through providing food and water and ultimately the Holy Spirit. And that ties into, of course, the Lord's Supper. Now, what Adam was supposed to do was grow and learn and partake from the tree of life. He was to grow, mature, learn, uh, labor, work, have God show him how to build a shovel, all of those things. And uh, he was to then partake of the tree of life once, once he was ready. And that was a confession that he himself does not have life in himself and that it only comes from God. The tree of life stood for that. If he had he trusted God, he would have went to the tree of life and partaken. And instead, again, next week, Adam went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is actually an assertion of autonomy. Life is derived from Adam's own self. That's the tree thing. Again, more, more next week. Second thing, the garden sanctuary, illustrated in the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle and the temple, was a place of worship and communion for God and Adam, uh, for Adam to give his worship to God. It was a nursery of sorts. It was a nursery of sorts for Adam's Great Commission project, what we call the Dominion Mandate. So like the garden, the church is to be a nursery for the kingdom, where all of life is to be transformed. When you come to Christ, you're a part of his church. Uh, you, you're brought in through the, the baptism. You partake of the Lord's Supper. You're brought in, and you are then trained. You are being uh, sent forth into the kingdom for, for work. Third thing, we learn from Ezekiel 28 that Eden was on a mountain. Eden was on a mountain. And that before the flood, the four great rivers came out from Eden. So actually, quite literally, we see that culture is downstream from religion. Eden was on a mountain, and the land of Eden flowed through the garden, and then it broke out into the rest of the world in these four great rivers. And we don't know exactly today that we have the Euphrates, the Tigris, but remember, this is before the flood broke, broke open all things. So what... Was Eden somewhere in the northern Middle East area? I think so. I do think so. Is it, can we ever find it? No. It's gone. <laughs> it, was, it was wiped out um, because of the flood. So culture is downstream from religion, just like all of the rest of the world is as well. So Adam was to mature. 
Adam's job in the garden was to mature, to get married, to get dressed for work. By the way, I do believe that Adam and Eve would eventually make their own clothes. I don't think that uh, uh, nakedness is sort of like this ideal that we should all aspire to someday. <laughs> Contrary to what some would think, I think Adam and Eve would have, he would have realized, boy, a pair of overalls would really work for this project. You know, I think he would have eventually made clothes. And, and also, I think he would have said, I, I could see the conversation, Eve walking up to Adam. Hey, look at this, this cool shirt I just made. Yeah, it looks beautiful on you, babe. That's great. You know, he probably called her babe, too. But uh, you laugh, but that's what this, this poetry is about at the end of this chapter. He did think so. Uh, so they probably would have developed in some degree, and they would have developed the world from there. They would have made all sorts of things and creative things, and they would have supposed to be going out into the world. And eventually, he would find gold. It's highlighted here where gold was found further down the river. Eventually, he would have found gold. Wow, this is a great form of currency. This is beautiful. It's precious. God put it here. He would have found other useful items, other stones. Basically, he would have discovered the periodic table. So in short, God's first gift to Adam, besides life, of course, and existence, was a garden park school. That was, that was the garden. It's a garden park school. Uh, Adam was the first homeschooler. Man is to learn from God, and thus he is to mimic God. Now, the second great gift God gave Adam was a vocation. He was to cultivate and keep the garden park. That's in verse 15. Cultivating the garden defines his vocation in relation to the earth. Freely eating of the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, defines his vocation in relation to heaven. So work the soil, that's your relationship to the earth, and obey God, eat of all the trees except for the one, that is his vocation in relationship to God and heaven. So to, to cultivate, this word can be confusing. And what do we mean by it? Well, to cultivate is to open it up and put it to use. Adam's job was to dig into the ground, find treasures, and make them useful. He was to cultivate and put it to good use. To guard is to protect from evil and corruption. So not only be productive, not only construct things, you also have to deal with evil. And that's how the, the guarding thing comes in. To rule over anything requires service, the acquisition of wisdom, the deployment of sound judgment. That is what rulership looks like. Man starts in the garden worshiping God, being trained by God. He then moves outward exercising his godly rule. The end of his work was supposed to be the tree of life and the Sabbath rest with God. That's how it was supposed to go. Curiously, the word for garden is actually related to the word for guard. There's a connection there. There's a priestly work that Adam was supposed to do. The priestly work of Adam was guarding the sanctuary. He was guarding the Most High, similar to what the priest would do in the tabernacle and the temple. The kingly work of Adam was serving and thus cultivating as a, subordinated, a subordinate ruler under God. In order, for, uh, in order to assist Adam in his learning, God had, he instituted what we call the covenant of works, sometimes called the covenant of creation. The covenant of favor is another way to describe it because everything Adam possesses, he has because of God's sovereign pleasure. He, he has nothing of his own volition here. Everything he has is a gift. At any rate, knowing this, there was an ethical boundary in place. Eat of anything and everything. Verse 16, eating you shall eat is a literal way of really translating that. Eating you shall eat, except... For the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's in verse 17. So if Adam eats the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, dying you shall die is the consequence. You shall surely die means mortality will be, be your new condition. Everything that marks mortality and not immortality will be your new condition. He is called Adam first, and then after sin, you have Adam, Seth, you have Enosh. Enosh simply means frail, weak, full of misery. Adam goes from glory to sin. Now, if he chooses wrongly, if Adam chooses wrongly, he will move from glory to death, 
the, the, it's the unglorification, I don't know if that's a word, but I, that's my word, of earth. Earth will become unglorified. It will be undone. It will not be beautiful anymore. It will be marked by consequence. Now, trials are for purification. Okay? We go through trials in life because God intends to purify us. This prohibition against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a trial. For Adam, it was the same thing. It was for his good. It was for his purification so he could learn. Would Adam want to remain forever in God's favor? Then yes, eat of everything except for that one tree. Would he say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh? We'll deal with that next week. But the third thing Adam was given by God was a wife. It wasn't good for man to be alone, and God wanted to make a suitable helper. That's in verse 18. Pushing the dust together like a potter does with clay, God, having formed the animals before Adam, remember early on day six, he brought those animals to Adam so that he could name them. So apparently the animals weren't in the garden yet, but then God let them in, which is how the serpent got in. So God lets them in and says, all right, Adam, you need to, this is a, a lesson in science here. You need to name the animals. So to name the animals is to lay hold of something, to serve and guard the garden. Presumably God brought them in. Serpent's there. He shows up very quickly. But God brought him in for this project. So using his untainted mind, I, I just imagine what, how Adam's mind was. How did it work? In an yeah, immature state, but yet in an not polluted by sin state, I, I always wonder what that was like. But Adam, in his untainted mind, he worked with the animals. He worked with the animals. The animals are in place to teach us something. Animals have a role in creation. It teaches us about, about ourselves, about man, about God. Uh, it teaches us about our role and our function in the world as, as servant cultivators. That's what Adam did. He was a servant cultivator. He named the animals. And it teaches us and taught Adam about his guarding role. Again, the serpent comes later, the serpent, an animal, to do what? To test him. Is he going to guard the garden? That's the question that looms here. So as it turns out, no animal is suitable for the task of cultivation and guardianship. That's in verse 20. Consequently, Yahweh, the covenant Lord, he puts Adam to sleep, presumably for the first time ever. Imagine being Adam there. You're, 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 what is this sleep thing that I'm undergoing at the moment? But God puts him in a deep sleep, sort of a death of sorts, and he's alone. Adam is alone. So God took the rib, or the Hebrew can be translated the side, took the side of Adam. He built a woman, and Adam wakes up in this covenantal union with Eve. He wakes up, and he's married. No other comments on that. Adam was formed. Adam was formed, but Eve was built. That's the Hebrew language. Adam was formed, but Eve was built. The first marriage consisted here of oneness. Eve came from Adam's side. They are unified. They are one flesh here. And here the covenant is made through blood. We like to think that this was some magical thing, but there was probably blood involved for Adam when he was in his deep sleep, you know, anesthesia given by the spirit sort of thing. And, and it takes out the rib from his side, blood's involved, and he makes a covenant in that moment, and Adam and Eve are married. They're one flesh. And quite literally, one flesh in the sense that the one came from the other. You don't get any more one flesh than that. So Eve comes alongside Adam now as a suitable helper. She is a helper who is suitable. She's a helpmeet. The physical joining of man and wife in intercourse points to their one flesh relationship. Our one fleshness with Christ, we know, doesn't have any sexual ramifications, but it pertains to food. What does God show us? that brings us together with Christ. It's right here before you, the bread and the wine. And by the way, when a, remember the soldier punctures Jesus' side. I think I might have mentioned this last week, if I remember, but the blood came out of his side. That's the forgiveness of sins. And the water came out, which is the refreshment of new life. And so out of the side of Jesus comes the bride, the new bride, the church. Now, woman in Hebrew, ishah, and man is ish. You can see how they're related. Fun words. Say it around the house. It's great, kids. Ish, Isha. 
Her name comes from him. Her name is derived from him, just like her body came from his side. Now, she is the greatest treasure given to man. And you men, you can acknowledge that right now. Go ahead. Your wife is a gift, the best of gifts. And mostly because they won't let us just be, you know, stupid, <laughs> for a lack of a better term. So thus, Adam has, he, he's, he has a helper now. He must be a steward. Now here's his job now. Now that he has, wakes up and has a wife, he's not only to keep and guard the garden, his job is to keep and guard the woman. He needs to protect her as well. She's a helper, and she too must be sacrificially cared for. She has to be cared for. She was given to Adam to help him achieve the Dominion Covenant. A special woman with a special call. A special woman with a special call. The first time Adam speaks, he does so in song in verse 23. At last, he says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my... He's, this is a rejoicing moment for him, a poetic endeavor. He writes a song for his girl. Probably, maybe, I don't think he had a guitar yet, but he would have used it had he developed it at that point. So for this reason, a man leaves his family, as does the woman, in order to establish a new covenant family. So science is involved here. That's the zoology here. Science is involved, but so is poetry and art when he sings and develops this song for his bride. And she probably loved it, thought it was marvelous. So culture building, by the way, this is an important point. Culture building works with both the mind and the hands. Some men have jobs that are more laborious in sense of using your hands. Some have jobs that are more with your mind, but both are important here in the kingdom. So at the end here in verse 25, Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. We're going to deal with that actually next week. How, how should we live now? How then shall we live? Adam and Eve were both image bearers of God. They were both image bearers. To be an image is a limiting concept. Humanity isn't ultimate, but derivative. So you're an image. That means you're not God. There's a limit here to who you are. You are not God. Uh, you are derived from God. You are the image. You are the reflection. To be, the, to be in the image of God is to possess a dignified status. So image, when you think of this phrase, image of God, the imago dei, image declares that you're not God, nor are you a God. Of God means that you're not evolved bacteria and you're not nothing. You do have dignity because God gave it to you. Theologians speak of this in three different categories. What do we mean by image of God? Well, one is substantial, meaning we have certain qualities like intelligence and reason and logic. Is that what we mean by image of God? Well, that's part of it. That's substantial. The second one is functional. We are God's representatives on earth. We have a function to serve as image bearers. And the third is relational. We are self-consciously existing in relationship to several things all at once. Relationship with the world, relationship with God, relationship with one another. That's, that's how we exist as humans. So all three of those are great, helpful ways to describe what do we mean by the image of God. Uh, Van Til said it this way, We are created in God's image, and therefore our knowledge cannot be exhaustive. We're in God's image, so our knowledge and understanding is not exhaustive like God's. It's limited. He says, We are created in God's image, and therefore our knowledge is true. So we can know things, and we should develop those things. So it's not, we're not God, but we're not nothing. We can't know everything, but that doesn't mean we cannot know anything. We know things. When we consider Adam's experience of God, I want to emphasize that on the whole, there must be an exchange or interaction between heaven and earth for the knowledge of God to pervade the creation. There has to be an interaction between heaven and earth in order for God's self-revelation to come forth. The spirit wind of heaven meeting the dust of the earth with the subsequent creation of man is that interaction. You, friends, are the result of heaven and earth together. You are the result of that. That's the interaction between heaven and earth. And that's why humans hold a very special place in the created order. 
You do have value. You do have dignity. dignity. You do have a calling. You are an important person because God, you're made in his image. And Adam knew God. He knew God through nature and he knew it through conscience as well. This natural bond of religious fellowship, one writer says. He was, he was made, and his experience of God and the creation were one and the same. Being an image bearer, Adam started the whole enterprise with a very intimate knowledge of God. And to be sure, he had the capacity to know God. Indeed, Adam was supposed to know him in greater levels in the garden. But he, he not only had the capacity to, to know God, he also truly possessed a knowledge of God directly. He knew God. And he knew him well. Did he know him exhaustively? No. But he was supposed to continue to know him. So in the garden, there was what we can call a harmony of knowledge. Adam knew God in creation and in direct revelation at the same time. He walked with God. Adam was supposed to show up at a place in the garden every Sabbath and enjoy the worship and rest of God. That was his task. He didn't get to do that because he sinned, but... More on that next time. So he walked with God. He knew God. The environment was entirely and comprehensively revelational. Adam swimmed in the revelation of God. He, he swam in the revelation of God. That's how intimately he knew God. Now, I bring this up here because the first humans were to be in what we call a prelapsarian state. That's before sin. Humans were uh, to be transformed. And they were to be transformed into a higher state of what we can call a natural development. Adam was supposed to grow and mature and learn. And again, it's not that they changed ontologically. Man didn't grow up to become a ginormous dinosaur. Kids, we're coming to the dinosaur stuff. Just be patient. We will get there. But man didn't change in that way. He, they were to change ethically. They were still human beings, but they had the capacity to grow, to mature, to learn more. And they weren't to be something other than human. There was greater glory to be had, greater maturation, greater heavenization. They were, so to speak, to settle into the righteousness that they already possessed by becoming more mature, more dynamic in their labors in the world. They were to be more glorious. The glory was to have this snowball effect with their children and their children's children. The tree of life signaled to Adam and Eve that the goal is life on earth in communion with God. That is the goal of the creation. Life on earth in communion with God. That was the tree of life was there and it stood for that for him. That was the telos. That was the goal of humanity on earth. Now, the tree of life changes, by the way. The tree of life is this eschatological hope of future healing. And that's what Christ accomplished on the cross as the tree of life himself. I, I, I believe that Christ himself is the tree of life, and on the cross, that cross was a tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the two trees are there. More again later, but that's, that's who Jesus was. So that's our task today. We want to see the world healed, and the way the world is healed is through the preaching of the gospel. Now our task, we say in the front of your bulletin, it's there, week in and week, week out. Never get bored with it, because the minute you get bored with it is the minute you start disobeying it. This is our task. Our task and calling is to equip the men, women, and children of this county of Northern Virginia, Loudoun, Fauquier, Prince William, Culpeper, even Fairfax, I guess. <laughs> our calling is to equip men, women, and children. Notice that, men, women, and children for something. For what? For them to learn how to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. And that is fueled by this chapter in Genesis. Part of that calling is recreative, uh, re-envisioning of what it means to be human. People do not, today do not know how, what it means to be human. They don't know how to be human, so they start tampering with everything that they've been given. Their biology, their mental capacity, you name it. We're to teach people to live with purpose and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ who gives humanity a renewed purpose and a renewed vision. There, there's no escaping this calling to heavenize the earth. There's no escaping it. 
And it's absolutely foundational to what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God. Man is, is brought into a covenant, like it or not. There are only two types of people in the world, covenant keepers, covenant breakers. That's it. You're brought into this, whether you like it or not. Those in Adam are involved in the old world, the first world, the condemnation that the covenant of works issues at creation. If you're in Adam, that's where you're at. But those are in, who are in Christ are involved in the new world, the second world, the recreation, the blessing that the covenant of grace issues to us. Those two people, you're either condemned in Adam by the covenant of works or you're brought to new life in the covenant of grace by Jesus Christ. And if we are to advance the gospel and equip people to serve King Jesus, we need to know these things. We need to know who we are, what we're supposed to be and do. We need to know that history itself is ethical warfare, which is why Jesus came to die. That's what history is, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's ethical warfare. There is good and there is evil. There is good and there is evil. That's the war. And it's not ontological warfare, meaning it's not about taking your guns and, and, and going with your swords and knives and let's just you know, kill everybody we don't like. It's not warfare like that. It's not a warfare of physicality. That's what Darwin claimed. Darwin claimed that everything is just evolution gone amok. It's just people infighting and growing, and the, the haves will defeat the have-nots. That's not our war. Don't let them play that, that, that card there. That's not our war. Our war is a war of ethics, a war of obedience. It's an ethical war of obedience. And Jesus came to change all of that, he came to grant us access into the garden sanctuary once again, except this time he brought us all the way into the courts of heaven. We also need to know what it means to be human in God's world. Again, right now our culture is very confused about these things. Humans are reduced to medical machines worthy of experimentation. The lives of the preborn are classified. This is the, oh, I can't stand this, but health decisions. It's not a health decision. It's a life. And we need to learn how to distinguish between good and evil. And we not only need to learn how to distinguish between good and evil, we need to know how to help others distinguish between good and evil. Because the world right now does not know the difference. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good, Isaiah says. Now good is what God commands. And truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. And what he has forbidden, we must hate. What God has forbidden, we must hate. And the only way to live in God's favor is to subject oneself to God's supremacy. Subject oneself to God's supremacy. And in Christ, friends, we have it. The, the gospel brings the covenant of grace to its zenith point. It, it brings us into the fellowship that Adam had lost. We don't find ourselves by looking inward. That's not how we do this. We gaze upon Christ whose image we bear. True identity is wrapped up in what Christ has given the world, which is to say our identity, purpose, and goal is Christ himself because he gave himself. Man is from the dust. Man is from the dust. Frail, lowly, impure. All men, even the greatest of men, are but dust and air. That's all they are. Those who are walking around the White House now are dust and air. That's it. All of us are on that playing field. But when the Spirit blows new life into us, something changes. Have you ever read in John 20, verse 22, this statement that it's only in John's Gospel? And it's awkward if you don't put it in this context. But do you remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, was with his disciples, he breathed on them? Now, no one likes to be breathed on, especially after you've had garlic. No one likes to be breathed on. And it's this awkward statement that Jesus says, he, he breathes on them. I don't know what that looked like. Probably was great, it's resurrection breath. It had to be sweet smelling. He breathes on them and then says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why would he do that? Why would he breathe on them? Because that's what the gospel is. It's new breath in your lungs. You're recreated in Christ's image. The gospel is God's great reclamation of all that Adam had forfeited in the garden. All that Adam lost, Christ recovered. 
the breath that was in Adam that was to be characterized by obedience, Jesus now gives us. He breathes into us. That's the Holy Spirit's work. So access to God, dominion in the world, relationships to take pleasure in, families to build, jobs to have and utilize, and food to eat, wine to drink, joy to, to exude. We work knowing that the work doesn't define us. We work knowing that, but the point, it points us to Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest. So we build, these, we build families and churches and businesses. We get involved in politics, and we, we are like a stone in the shoe of politicians when they don't do the right thing, right? Sometimes we agitate them, and, and rarely do we ever compliment them because incompetence is a real thing. But we do all of these things. We build all these things. We give our kids Christian educations. Why? Because we were created for glory, through glory, and by glory. Life is valuable because God is, is the supreme treasure. And as we serve this great king, lovingly announcing to the world the glory of his son, we find ourselves saying the same thing that Hannah said. Listen carefully to Hannah, and we'll close and we're we'll in here. Hannah said this, There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. He raises the poor from the dust. He exalts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of glory. For the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's, and he set the world on them. Hannah sees, even in the Old Testament, the glory that was to come with Christ. The world is his, and he takes us from the dust and the ashes, and he puts us into glory. That is a gospel worth proclaiming, friends. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you and rejoice in your word. We rejoice uh, that you have created us, that you sustain us, you provide for us each and every day. And we know we are but dust, but we also know we are glory too because of what you've done in your son. We thank you, Spirit, that you dwell among us and in us. And we pray that we would live for your glory, God, that we would live in obedience to work and keep this world you have blessed us with. So help us to be faithful in our homes. God, help our men and women to be faithful to the callings that you have placed before them and help our children as well. God, we exalt you and worship you today. In Christ's name, amen.